You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 215, The Dunkirk Pirate. In the spring of 1779, Gustavus Cunningham sailed into Philadelphia. The ship captain had been away for years and was returning home after many successful raids and harrowing experiences. Cunningham had been born in Ireland, but moved to Philadelphia with his family as a teenager in 1763. His cousin had already established a successful shipping company. Gus joined the family business and was soon commanding merchant ships in trade with the West Indies and Europe. He purchased a home in Philadelphia, got married, and settled into the life of a merchant ship's captain. Cunningham also supported the Patriot cause. In late 1775, the Maryland Council of Safety contracted with Cunningham to sail to Europe and purchase gunpowder and other military supplies. Cunningham sailed his ship, the Charming Peggy, to Dunkirk, France to purchase the needed items. British agents took notice of his purchases and notified French authorities. The French at this time were obligated by treaty to prevent the colonies from buying any war materials, but they also didn't really want to live up to that treaty. French officials inspected his ship as the British ambassador demanded, but found nothing. Cunningham had received advance notice and had dumped his gunpowder into the harbor before inspectors arrived. So Cunningham made his escape, but still without the gunpowder. He sailed for the Netherlands, where he made another deal to purchase gunpowder. This time, one of his own crew members informed authorities. Officials seized the ship, put it under a prize crew, and arrested the captain and crew. Cunningham, however, was not ready to go to prison. His crew overpowered the prize crew aboard his ship and made a dash back to the Netherlands. There, Cunningham made a quick deal to sell his ship before it could be confiscated. He made a deal to sell it to the Dutch government, but ended up never getting the money. Dutch officials simply kept his ship and never paid him. So, by early 1776, Cunningham was still a free man, but was stuck in the Netherlands without a ship, supplies, or money. He spent the next year stuck in Europe as the war in America heated up. In early 1777, Cunningham received word that American commissioners in Paris were trying to purchase and outfit ships to harass British shipping. Benjamin Franklin had arrived in France with pre-signed commissions from the Continental Congress. He gave Cunningham a commission as a captain in the Continental Navy in March of 1777. Franklin also put Cunningham in contact with William Hodge, a recently appointed American agent in Dunkirk. The men outfitted a merchant ship that they purchased into a converted warship, which they named the Surprise. By May, Cunningham had assembled a crew and sailed the Surprise out into the English Channel, where he began seizing British merchant ships. His ten-gun ship was pretty small by naval standards, but living up to its name, it was a real surprise for British merchant ships in the English Channel. Cunningham was able to get in close and demand the surrender of ships unaccustomed to attack in these friendly waters. 
the Surprise captured two ships and sailed back to Dunkirk. The British, of course, were apoplectic about this. This was early 1777, and France and Britain were still at peace. The British ambassador to France lodged a formal protest with Vergen. He noted that France was permitting its harbors to be used by American pirates, and that they had taken British ships that were engaged in lawful commerce. France was treaty-obligated to prevent the use of their ports for anyone attacking British shipping. Under this pressure, French officials seized all three ships, the Surprise and the two captured prize ships, returning the captured vessels to British authorities and arresting the crew. The British wanted Cunningham to be sent to London to be tried for piracy and hanged. The British ambassador, Lord Stormont, began referring to Cunningham as the Dunkirk Pirate. Franklin was able to intervene and get Cunningham freed before the British could take him to England for trial. France continued to play its dangerous game of supporting American efforts as much as possible, while still avoiding war with Britain. Impressed by Cunningham's first voyage, Hodge was able to convert an even larger ship for Cunningham's next voyage. The new ship, dubbed the Revenge, had 14 cannons and 22 swivel guns. It was also extremely fast. The French government learned of the new ship, but it allowed it to leave on the promise that it would sail to America. Everyone knew this was a lie, but it gave the government the cover it needed to release the ship. Aboard his new ship, the Revenge, Cunningham spent most of the next two years harassing British shipping all around England, Scotland, and Ireland. By some accounts, he captured or destroyed at least 60 ships, mostly using Spain as a neutral port to sell his prizes and make necessary repairs. In Britain, word of the Dunkirk pirate spread as he became the most effective American raider in Europe. His efforts, along with the three other Continental Navy ships harassing British shipping in 1777, created a real problem. British merchant ships could not get insurance except at astronomical rates. British merchants began shipping on foreign ships that they knew would not be subject to attack as long as they flew under a neutral flag. British commercial shipping came almost to a standstill. The British Navy sent out ships in all directions with orders to capture the Dunkirk pirate, but without success. Now back in Versailles, the British ambassador threatened war. The British ambassador to France, Lord Stormont, accused French officials of tolerating the revenge, allowing it to operate with its mostly French crew as it was disrupting British shipping. Unless French officials put a stop to it, Britain was definitely going to war with France and would begin seizing French ships at sea. Now, this was still the summer of 1777. The British army from New York was launching its offensive against Philadelphia, and another army from Quebec was moving into New York. So, French officials saw a real possibility that the American rebellion might come to a quick end. They did not want war with Britain if Britain was not distracted in America. So, French officials began cracking down on the Americans. At one point, Cunningham was being held in a French harbor pending arrest, but then somehow got permission to leave. Officials arrested the American agent, Hodge, who they threw into the Bastille. They also began cracking down on officials who had allowed Cunningham to leave port with his ships. The crew of the Revenge was mostly European sailors who had joined not out of any sense of patriotism or love of war, 
but in hopes of making some money. Many of them were, for lack of a better word, would-be pirates who were pretty much happy to attack any ship from any country as long as it could help make them some money. Cunningham had to keep his crew in line, manage the politics of neutral ports where British wanted him arrested, and fight the entire British Navy that was looking to hang him. Despite all this, he managed to remain active, raising thousands of dollars in prize money for the Patriot cause and disrupting British trade. Cunningham continued to raid British shipping around Britain for the rest of the summer and fall. He sailed north to the Baltic and also through the Irish Channel. He even seized several ships right in the mouth of the Thames River. At one point, he even disguised his ship put into an English port for repairs. Over the course of 18 months, he captured 27 ships and sank or burned another 33. By 1778, France had gone to war with Britain. But Cunningham's difficulties with authorities did not end there. He faced accusations that he had attacked neutral ships, including merchant ships from Sweden and Spain. It appears that Cunningham had taken the, shall we say, controversial position that it was okay to seize British property that was being carried aboard neutral ships. This was in contravention of generally accepted norms of privateering. Eventually, he found that all European ports were closed to his ship. No one wanted to be associated with the Dunkirk pirate. Cunningham eventually sailed to the West Indies, thinking he could disrupt shipping there as well. By early 1779, Cunningham had been away from home in Philadelphia for over three years. The American agent at Martinique, William Bingham, asked Cunningham to deliver a load of weapons to Philadelphia. So, taking on that mission finally allowed Cunningham to have an opportunity to return home and see his family. Cunningham returned to Philadelphia to what should have been a hero's welcome. He'd captured more ships than any other privateer or captain in the Continental Navy. He had completely disrupted shipping between Britain and the continent, and he had provided prize money that left the American commissioners in Paris with desperately needed funds. The Continental Congress in Philadelphia, however, did not see it that way. Several of his crew had returned to Philadelphia before him and had accused him of not paying promised wages to his crew. More importantly, though, Cunningham got caught up in Congress's efforts to assault the reputation of Silas Dean. Paris Commissioner Arthur Lee had reported that the Surprise and the Revenge, both of Cunningham's ships, were operating as privateer ships. Commissioner Lee further alleged that this was part of a larger scheme between Silas Dean and Cunningham to enrich themselves at government expense. Lee alleged that Dean had pocketed the prize money and that Cunningham had possibly shared in that money. The chair of the Maritime Committee in Congress at this point was Arthur Lee's brother, Richard Henry Lee. The committee called on Cunningham to give an account of himself. The first thing he needed to do was establish that he was, in fact, a Continental Navy officer, as he alleged. For that, he needed to produce his commission. Unfortunately for Cunningham, French officials had seized his commission when they had arrested him to appease British officials before the two countries had gone to war. Cunningham had to slip out of France rather quickly and unofficially to avoid arrest and never got his commission back. Cunningham also did not have any paperwork or 
often even any first-hand knowledge about the sales of the prizes that he had captured. Typically, he sent his prizes to a port where they could be sold quickly and quietly before officials got wind of them and tried to seize them. It really didn't make much sense to keep records of ships that were being captured and sold. That information could only be used against him later at a piracy trial if the British captured him. Further, his goal was not really to raise money. It was to disrupt shipping. The sales of those ships were just an added benefit, and he had really left that to others. Now, the committee seemed to accept Cunningham's explanation about the disposition of the ships, but without proof of a commission, they concluded that he was a privateer, not a captain in the Navy. Since Benjamin Franklin had provided his commission and was still in Paris, there was no way to confirm Cunningham's claim, at least not for many months. Instead, Congress ordered Cunningham's ship, the Revenge, seized as government property. Since Congress could not raise a crew to make use of the ship, Congress, always desperate for cash, opted to sell the ship at auction. The state of Pennsylvania tried to buy the ship for river defenses, but it was outbid by a private bidder. That private bidder was a merchant by the name of Gustavus Cunningham. Yes, Captain Cunningham bought back his own ship. If Congress would not recognize his commission, he would at least go back to work on his own terms against British shipping. Cunningham received a letter of marque from Pennsylvania to protect commerce along the Delaware River, but that was only a short-term gig. Once that expired for Cunningham in the spring of 1779, he once again went out into the Atlantic in search of British prizes. Cunningham very quickly came up against the British Navy ship, the Galatia, in late April. Although he attempted to escape, the Galatia was faster and managed to force his surrender. The British crew captured the ship and put Captain Cunningham in irons. The capture of the Dunkirk pirate was really a big deal for the British. Now, because neither side was willing to recognize Cunningham as a naval officer at the time of his capture, and because his letter of marque had expired, the British treated Cunningham as a pirate. The Galatia took him back to British-occupied New York, where he was held in a prison ship in some pretty horrific conditions. He only remained in New York for a short time before the British leadership decided to ship the famous Dunkirk pirate back to England to face trial for treason and piracy. For a time, he was held at Pendennis Castle in Falmouth, then moved to Mill Prison in Plymouth. For most of his stay, his captors kept Cunningham in irons and held him in continuing horrific conditions. Cunningham lost about 50 pounds and was in danger of starvation. Now, Cunningham knew that he was in serious danger of being hanged as well. He made serious attempts to escape prison, including one where he dressed up like a visiting doctor and simply walked out the front gate with a group of visitors but the guards realized it just after he got out and were able to recapture him. His captures did offer him a way out of his predicament. If he agreed to join the British Navy, he could leave prison and return to sailing. Cunningham, however, was a committed patriot. He not only refused the offers, but joined in a signed agreement with his fellow prisoners that none of them would enlist with the British in order to gain release from prison. Meanwhile, back in America, Cunningham's reputation was improving. Benjamin Franklin in Paris had been able to get word to Congress that Cunningham was in fact a legitimate Navy captain. 
Once that was established, the Continentals protested the treatment of this captured officer, and in retaliation for Cunningham's poor treatment by the British, the Americans confined a captured British officer being held in Boston to conditions similar to those that Cunningham had experienced. The British, however, were undeterred. They still planned to try and likely hang the Dunkirk pirate. Messing with British shipping was a serious offense, and examples had to be made. Cunningham was not interested in sticking around to see if the Americans could convince the British otherwise. He and several prisoners were able to break into the prison storeroom and steal some digging tools. The group managed to dig a tunnel under the main prison wall. On the night of November 3rd, the group made its escape. The plan was for hundreds of prisoners to use the tunnel that night and all make their escape, creating general chaos. However, after the first few dozen had gone through, the scramble inside the tunnel turned to chaos. A boy got trampled and had his arm broken. His screams alerted the guards, who shut down the tunnel and recaptured most of the escaping prisoners. Cunningham, however, had been one of the first few out of the tunnel. He managed to avoid capture. A national manhunt for the Dunkirk pirate got underway. But despite this, Cunningham managed to make his way to London, where he had friends who provided him with shelter and money. After a few weeks, he was able to get smuggled out of England aboard a ship bound for Rotterdam in the Netherlands. In 1779, the Netherlands was still a neutral party in the war. It had treaties with Britain, but was tolerating the semi-covert use of its ports by the American Navy and some privateers. When Cunningham reached the Netherlands, he was able to make contact with Commodore John Paul Jones. Jones had landed at Texel, which was a small Dutch island just off the northern coast of the Netherlands. Jones had actually just captured a British ship, the Serapis, in a recent battle, losing his own ship, the Bonhomme Richard, in the process. Now, that battle's a whole separate story that I'm going to cover in a separate episode. But for now, suffice it to say that as soon as Jones had rehabbed his fleet, Cunningham joined with Jones's fleet. The British were pressuring Dutch officials to turn over all these American pirates to Britain. The neutral Dutch were doing their best to avoid doing so, while still trying to avoid going to war with Britain. There was also a British fleet just offshore, in case the Americans attempted to make an escape from port. Now, despite this British blockade, Jones and Cunningham managed to slip out of Texel at night on December 27th and avoid their would-be captors. Jones had given Cunningham command of a new frigate, the Alliance. The squadron once again began wreaking havoc on shipping in the English Channel. By this time, though, Cunningham was eager to get home. When the American fleet reached Spain after a few weeks of raiding, Cunningham parted ways with Jones and, as a passenger, boarded another privateer ship, the Experiment, which was headed back to America. Unfortunately, the British captured the Experiment at sea in March of 1780. They identified the Dunkirk pirate and sent him back to Mill Prison in Plymouth. There, once again, the authorities held Cunningham in chains and under close confinement. However, they never did hold any trial. It seems that this time they accepted his status as a prisoner of war. That said, he was not accorded the honorable treatment usually granted to a captured officer and was considered a very serious flight risk. 
After about a year in prison, Cunningham was permitted to return to France as part of a prisoner exchange in the summer of 1781. This is where the timeline gets a little sketchy. Supposedly, the commissioners gave Cunningham another ship, the Loyola, which he outfitted and prepared for another cruise against British shipping. But before the cruise could get underway, Cunningham received word of a peace treaty that would end the war. Now, the treaty negotiations didn't begin until the spring of 1782, so Cunningham may have been cooling his hails in France for a year after he left prison, but before he had a new ship that was ready to go. In any event, with news of the treaty, Cunningham decided not to launch another cruise against British shipping. Instead, he boarded the Hannibal as a passenger and returned to Philadelphia, this time successfully. There, he would return to his life as a merchant captain and renew his fight for recognition of his service in the Continental Navy, this time for veterans' benefits. Next week, we return to the southern frontier for the Battle of Chickamauga Creek. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks, as always, to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and George Hunter. Thanks also to John Herbert, Jeffrey Voorhees, Claire Enser, Mary Wood, Diane Ward, Matthew Altshuler, and Matthew Domer for one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. I really am most grateful for everyone who helps me cover my podcast expenses. As I've said before, I don't put any content behind a paywall, and I've opted to limit advertising to only a few host-read sponsors that I think are of really great interest. Now, this means I'm putting all my content out there in hopes that you will help support me voluntarily, making it freely available to everyone who cannot afford to support me financially. If you want to be an ongoing member for as little as $2 a month, please go to patreon.com and look up the American Revolution podcast. If you are able to contribute $10 a month or more, you will receive a magnet each and every month with a different flag from the American Revolution. I really hope you will consider supporting this podcast. If you can't, though, I do appreciate you listening and helping to spread the word. Now, one correction I have from last week, I referred to South Carolina General in the Continental Army, Isaac Huger. Several people pointed out that his last name is actually pronounced Yugi. Even though it's spelled H-U-G-E-R, it's pronounced Yugi. So, go figure. This week, 
I talked about Gustavus Cunningham, who I think is really one of the most important Navy captains from the Revolution. His efforts aren't really well remembered, though, primarily because Congress refused to recognize his commission. As I alluded at the end of the main show, Jones spent years fighting for recognition of his naval service. Benjamin Franklin had sent certifications of his commission, even though French officials had lost the original commission. Even with Franklin's certification, Congress refused to recognize Cunningham as a naval officer. Instead, they just continued to treat him as a privateer. Now, this erroneous classification was related to that long-standing fight with the Lees. Arthur Lee, as I said, had accused Cunningham of conspiring with Silas Dean to keep the prize money for themselves. And because much of the prize money was obtained and spent covertly by the French commissioners, there was really no paper trail on any of this. Therefore, Congress was highly skeptical of paying out any more prize money to Captain Cunningham, even if he was a privateer. So the government really never made any determination in his case. Years after the war ended, in 1793, Cunningham once again renewed his appeal for claims with the new federal government. By this time, Alexander Hamilton was Secretary of the Treasury and reviewed his case. Unfortunately, by 1793, Benjamin Franklin, Silas Dean, and Arthur Lee were all dead, so there were no more good witness evidence for Cunningham's claims. Hamilton could not find sufficient evidence to prove any of Cunningham's claims and did not act on them. None of these rejections, though, seemed to dampen Cunningham's ardor or support for America. He continued to work as a shipowner and merchantman out of Philadelphia and began to rebuild his life as a private citizen. Later, during the quasi-war with France, which took place in the late 1790s, Cunningham outfitted a ship of war and prepared to do battle at sea once again, but that war ended before any fighting actually began. Again, a couple of decades later, during the War of 1812, Cunningham attempted to outfit a ship to sail back to the English Channel and renew his fight with the British. But he was really just too old by then, so instead he ended up raising funds for the defense of Philadelphia during the war, and he finally died at home in Philadelphia in 1819. Now, nearly a century after that, in the early 20th century, an American collector was purchasing some old naval memorabilia in France. He happened to purchase an old Revolutionary War Commission, signed by John Hancock and granted by Benjamin Franklin, which commissioned a young man named Gustavus Cunningham as a captain in the Continental Navy. The long-lost commission had finally reappeared, and Cunningham could retroactively get the credit that he deserved for his service to the country. I really wish I could recommend a good biography about Captain Cunningham, but unfortunately there doesn't seem to be one. Instead, I'm going to go off topic this week with my book recommendation and recommend a brand new book by fellow podcaster Mike Duncan. It's a new biography about the Marquis de Lafayette called Hero of Two Worlds. Duncan is, of course, a podcasting legend for his work, The History of Rome and The Revolutions Podcast. His new book about Lafayette looks at the man who played such an important role both in the American Revolution and later in the French Revolution. I'll admit that I have not yet received the copy of the book myself, but knowing Duncan's prior work, I know it's going to be great. 
As always, I've included an Amazon link, which also offers an audiobook option. But Mike is encouraging people to buy his book at private bookstores, which of course have had an especially hard time over the past couple of years. So in addition to my Amazon link, I've also included a link to bookshop.org, which allows you to order the book online through a private bookstore. So you have that option as well. My online recommendation is more of research material than a book that you'll want to sit down and read cover to cover. It's called Letters and Papers Related to the Cruises of Gustavus Cunningham. This was a book published in 1915 and edited by Robert Neeser. It's really a compilation of the various letters and other important papers related to Cunningham. So if you want to read more of the first-hand primary source accounts, this is a great place to start. You can download this free public domain book or read it online at archive.org. You can search for it on archive.org, or as always, I've included direct links on my website at www.amrefpodcast.com. Now, my question this week comes from Luke Levesque, who asks, if the Americans would have taken Quebec City, would the locals be allowed to speak French and to be Catholic? Well, Luke, it's difficult to say with any certainty how things would turn out if history went differently. Now, we do know that the states and later the federal government made no real effort to mandate any particular language use. Uh, There were Dutch-speaking citizens in New York and German-speaking citizens in Pennsylvania that maintained relatively large communities, and some of these existed well into the 20th century. Presumably, French-speaking citizens in Quebec would have been afforded the same opportunity. As for practicing Catholicism, although some states still had limitations on Catholics holding political office and a few other restrictions at the time of independence, Most of those rules seemed to fade pretty quickly in the years following as states accepted the notion of religious freedom. Even for states that were still skeptical of having Catholics in their midst, they didn't really make any objection to Catholics living in other states that were part of the United States. So, if Quebec had entered the U.S. as its own state, it almost certainly would have been free to practice Catholicism as large communities were already doing in places like Pennsylvania and Maryland. The Continental Congress was actively trying to encourage Quebec to join with the other states. The Articles of Confederations specified that Quebec could join the Confederation whenever it wished, and put no restrictions on language or religion as a condition of doing so. If you have a question that you'd like me to answer on the podcast after show, please email me at mtroy.history at gmail.com or reach out to me on social media. I'll do what I can to answer any questions you have about the American Revolution. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. <laughs>